0: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Kareem Mohammed who is the author of The Fight for Black Empowerment in the United States, or the USA, America's Last Hope. This is part of Rutledge's Research in Race and Ethnicity series and is published by Rutledge Press in 2024. So it is a very, very new book. Um, And I'd like to welcome Kareem Mohamed to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to the book, The Fight for Black Empowerment in the USA. Hello, Kareem.
2: Hey, uh, Doctor Gore, or, or would you prefer me to call you Lily? Lily's fine. <laughs> well, thanks for having me today, uh, Lily. Um, and yeah, I'm uh, the dean of arts and sciences here at Carroll University. Uh, my background is actually in sociology, and much of my work is focused on race and cultural studies, uh, particularly hip hop culture. Uh, within it, there's always been some uh, political slants in all of my work, as I think, um, and you know, we talked about this uh, previously how uh culture and uh, the political are very interlocked. Um but this was definitely um, a step in a new direction in terms of really digging into the formal political system.
1: And you do dig into the political system in the United States and you do it in in a really kind of, you know, sort of um fundamentally kind of political sciencey way. Um Absolutely. if I'm, I'm using those terms correctly, political sciencey of course is a is a technical term there. Um <laughs> and and you you are sort of getting at this question of you know the who gets what how when and and why questions which is you know sort of basic questions about like political power the distribution of goods from the government or elsewhere um so it's it it is about you know sort of power and dynamics but it's also about the economics um and so awesome. y- you're you're starting out your this project, which is this question of Black empowerment in the United States. Um, and this is a group of people who have been systematically disenfranchised, mm-hmm. dislocated, obviously um, enslaved for a number, uh, n- number of centuries um, in the United States. So when we're talking about Black empowerment, we're not just talking about also um, ag- uh, political empowerment. Um, so, can you talk absolutely. a little bit about, you know, sort of the fundamental thesis that you're working on here in terms of like the sociological and political science overlays? You
2: no, know, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, like, you know, I guess, like, um, I'll double back in terms of kind of what was the uh, impetus for this work, um, you know, in the first place. In, in talking to uh, some of my friends and colleagues, and increasingly in the Black community. Um, there is like just kind of a um, a denial of our power in some cases where, uh, and this dates back even to uh, the election of President Obama, uh, where folks, uh, some, you know, felt like, okay, well, this is just uh, something that's uh, symbolic. It is not a true reflection of any kind of like um, black improvement or, or black empowerment, uh, a, a point that I take a uh, strong uh, opposition to. Um, so to your point, Really, I really wanted to look at how power is distributed. Where I think uh, the poli side folks are understanding as well that power is uh, not something that's absolute within a social system. And a lot of times, in speaking to some of my colleagues, um, you know, with, and, and again, these are by and large middle class, upper middle class folks um, with high levels of education who just felt, you know, power that the black community is um, powerless. So I really wanted to uh, disturb that notion, Um, but not with anything that's anecdotal, but to just provide as much empirical evidence as possible to uh, demonstrate how power has been demonstrated, um, how power has been distributed across time. And across time is an important component of it because as you know, um, democracy and political change can move, it can seem very slow. And I understand that frustration. But I want the, But when looking at the broad scope of things, um, the strides that Black Americans have made in this country, um, to your point in being slaves, uh, slaves less than two hundred years ago, I think is amazing when you look at it in a global perspective and and sizing up political systems more broadly. So we still have a long ways to go, no question. But the impetus uh, for it was to kind of a a love story to the black community first and foremost, although that's not the only audience by any means, but to really like uh, challenge us to think about power a little bit more differently, a little bit differently. And um, to really recognize and appreciate some of the gains that have been made. And then finally to uh, recognize because uh, Mitt Romney, for example, in the 2012 election, he had made the comment, I think this was, um, when the uh, waiter had uh, recorded him um, at the fundraising event, that essentially was saying that you know um, President Obama gets people to vote for him because you know of uh, you know he's giving it, giving things away, and there are some within a black community um, and definitely outside of it um, in conservative circles, uh, most uh, particularly, that also have bought into this notion. And the book really challenges um, readers to uh, move away from this. Uh, because nothing has been given. Every single like um, morsel of power that's been gained within a Black community has been fought for, and each generation has to start to fight anew. A lot of times we think that, like, okay, that uh, since Mecker Evers and Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hamer um, and Barbara Montgomery um, you know, had certain fights back in the 1950s and 60s, that the work is done. So it just really challenged our uh, readers to... Um, understand that power is an ongoing fight. It is not an absolute um, variable. It is something that is fluid throughout society. And um, I, to try and help us to leverage our power more effectively. I hope that answers your questions.
1: It did. And and again, you're talking about this idea, this concept of Black empowerment, right? And Black empowerment is, is exactly that. It's the idea that this particular community um, that has unfortunately, suffered at the hands of so much in the United States, not just enslavement, but ridiculous prejudice and Jim Crow. Um, and, you know, it's sort of undermining of the capacity of this particular racial group to succeed in the American dream, right? Um, that 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 there is, in fact, power in this coalition. Um And it's not something that should be either taken for granted or kind of written off. Um, So can you talk about how, you know, politics and political parties in general, um, but the sort of democracy in the United States has kind of written off Black empowerment?
2: A a great question. Um, Historically, so the skepticism and, um, and in some cases downright cynicism that some of my colleagues felt like it's coming from a very real place because there have been moments throughout history where uh, the black vote has not been um, considered. And in many ways, uh, Lily, I attempt to like even expand this discussion beyond voting because too often when we think of politics, we only think about in these four year blocks in terms of presidential elections and that politics only plays out at the voting booth. And um, as you know, as I'm sure, you know, better than most Everything is political, um, just about in our everyday lives. Um, so, to really try and like you know refocus this shift in, in terms of at different points in history, this has not always been true in terms of um, the black pol- uh, political bloc having a lot of leverage and power. There have been times in history, just because we um, you know, is our system is one that works from um, a political majority as opposed to a, a parliamentary system. There have been moments in um, some places where the Black vote can almost be ignored. Um, this happens in some states, some cities still uh, today. But there have been particular moments in history, Reconstruction, the New Deal, um, the late 60s, and I think now, where the Black vote has been very decisive. The White vote is um, so evenly divided right now um, in ways that I sometimes find strange. But it is, well, actually, I take that back. I don't find it strange to you know? I imagine we'll speak to that in a moment. But um, this is a, a a moment right now where uh, the black vote and this, this bore out in 2016 and 2020 and even in the midterms to a degree, um, it's been really decisive. So one of the things, for example, um, you know, speaking to your question directly, Lily, it, it frustrates me. We, we hear about these different voting blocks. So we'll hear that, you know, we need to appeal to Midwestern voters. And a lot of times um, that's a standstill for we need to get some white working class union voters, a group of voters that have showed the Democratic Party since uh, the 1980s that they're just not into them. But election after election after election, uh, the Democrats in particular on on a national level, they are very aggressive in their overtures to this group in ways that is not always seen within the Black community. And that is um, just a... Uh, a politically negligent strategy in my view and this is uh boring sh- uh, showing out so in 2016 for example the election wasn't lost in like you know uh, some of these uh white working- class enclaves it was lost by not turning out Milwaukee and not turning out Detroit and not turning out um, Atlanta and not turning out um, Philadelphia so these are the pockets where I think you know y- you know there's an old saying you got to dance with um who brought you and a lot of times, you know, I think the Democratic Party has kind of tried to shy away from its identity and try and be everything to all people in a way that, to their credit, the Republican Party over the last 30, 40 years has not done as much. Um, so I think that hopefully, uh, and, and I do see some positive signs in this direction, that the Democrats are understanding that their path to political victory is uh, lies in expanding their, va- their base. And I speak specifically to uh, the Black community uh, for the most part in this book, but by no means is that the only focus. They have to, um, you know, increase um, their share of uh, the Latino vote. Um, They have to work hard to get uh, more young voters. They have to energize, um, you know, our brothers and sisters in uh, the LGBTQ community. So these this this coalition of the ascendant, if you will, um, I think are the folks that really need to be drawn out. But my argument here, uh, Lily, is that if they don't, uh, you know, get black vote, a high level black voter turnout, uh, election success is almost impossible.
1: All right. And following up on on the sort of this discussion of, you know, the various groups that make up the Democratic Party coalition, uh, part of what you're talking about in this book in particular is the way that black Americans have been you know, real bedrocks of the Democratic Party, um, particularly New Deal on, um, and, and so obviously there has been critique over the years that the Democratic Party takes this voting block for granted. Um, and of course the, the particularly African-American women turn out at about the highest levels of any particular group in the United States consistently, um, And so unfortunately Democrats do take them for granted, but you're also talking about the fact that within this voting block of, of black voters that women and men are having a little bit of a sort of cleavage. Um, can you talk about not only this question of taking, taking this group of voters for granted, but also what's going on there?
2: No, great, 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 great question. I'm glad you spoke to that because you're right. Like, um, and talking about the Black voting block in many ways, a misnomer. Um, and really, and like, quite frankly, maybe dating back at least 200 years, quite frankly. Like, so even the Civil Rights Movement, you hear about Martin Luther King and, you know, um, and John Lewis and Ralph Abernathy, you know, like, you know, and great dudes who did uh, amazing work. The Civil Rights Movement was led and spurred by Black women. Um, and that's been the political leadership in our communities for quite some time. And one of the things in the lead up to this book that really became alarming to me is that um, the book makes um, an attempt to really uh, challenge uh, the vestiges of white supremacy, which you know, um, while not as o- I was going to say as not as overt as um, the Reconstruction period, but each day I, I kind of wonder, right? <laughs> like we're we're getting we we might be uh, nudging back to that. But one of the things alas, that like, with- yes. <laughs> alas, right. yes, alas, yes, right. <laughs> One of the things that really struck me, particularly in some of my anecdotal conversations, is that how much so many um, Black men are deeply invested in the idea of white supremacy patriarchy, um, which just, and I guess I should not have been so taken aback by this, um, but it's been really alarming. In some cases, disturbing and heartbreaking, um, where I think in, you know, a a sizable segment of Black men have found like, you know, uh, Trump's fake machismo, um, very appealing and in terms like, you know, making America great again, that also might mean that, you know, where um, men could be men and women would quote unquote know their place. And there are a lot of black men today who find that really um, appealing. Um, And again, some of it, I think uh, much like the black and white working class have often been pitted against each other historically I think we see some of those divides here as well, um, but even as, as more groups begin to make inroads, like um, there's a huge, um, you know, well, a, a sizable homophobic stream within the, the black male community, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of times, you know, and and again, it, it took me off guard because I thought, like, I thought, like, hey, we were all for equality, but increasingly, like, people, like, no, we're for black equality. Um, and everybody else will just have to kind of figure it out. But, you know, you can't have one without the other. Like, if we're going to attack white supremacy, we have to, like, you know, attack it all. And there are some uh, Black men, I think, for example, um, we see this uh, most visibly uh, with, um, you know, my fellow Chicagoan, uh, Kanye West, for example, and in some of his uh, public postures and uh, fascination with Hitler and stuff like that, like we're seeing with... um, you know, the uh, likely Republican nominee. And it just um, seems to be really strange. But to your point, this has been kind of festering for a while. I think that there are some uh, Black men who feel uncomfortable with the amount of um, power and influence that Black women are uh, are gaining. Um, and again, even at that stage, like, um, you know, we still have a long ways to go. But that divide has been particularly disturbing And um, Democratic politicians have to find a way to um, communicate in a way to try and bridge those cleavages that you spoke about. But they're very real and they're very pronounced. And then one final point related to this is it's also socioeconomic in that uh, much like we see with suburban white voters, for example, and there's um, a difference in terms of like um, how many of the white working class, you know, uh, lean politically. I think we're seeing this as well within the Black community because Black women have been able to, like, you know, reap the benefits of formal education and um, upward mobility at rates that are higher uh, than Black men. There are a lot of systemic reasons for this, particularly um, the, uh, you know, predatory wrong drugs that was launched to Nixon, Reagan, and um, even Bill Clinton um, that really did a number on a lot of uh, Black males within a community. But I think that as opposed to looking at the culprit of these problems, a lot of times Black women are held as scapegoats in that regard.
1: And and I, I know that you talk about some of these statistics in the book, and, and I've also seen them elsewhere with regard to the much higher level of education that Black women have been attaining um, over time, um, and that Black men, also like white men, have been falling behind or choosing not to pursue. Um, and, and so therefore they have also not entered into a sort of professionalized class. And I, I'm not trying to make big, giant, um, you know, sort of sweeping generalizations here. Um, but, but, but there are these sort of, you know, sort of distinctions in, in both the white community and the black community in terms of who's going to college, who's succeeding in college Um And, you know, who's achieving, you know, different kinds of job outcomes, Um, which is which stands a lot of the um, sort of idea of what happened for the African-American family kind of on its head um, from the, you know, sort of from the New Deal period into in, in manufacturing and the um, and industrial sort of jumps that we went through in the post-war period, that the black man was the head of the household. Um, and you talk about this in the book. Can you talk just a little bit more about, you know, how this is also starting to impact the political dynamics with regard to black empowerment?
2: No, great question. The book actually, like, so the book actually begins with this, um, this kind of balance, like, um, with my own household. And as a child, like, you know, kind of seeing like, you know, um, the gender because like overtly, Lily, like it might have like the traditional patriarchal model. And, and let me be clear, like, you know, and as I'm sure, you know, um, black feminism is often framed in a different way than like, you know, traditional feminism would be, um, you know, so there are some nuances there. But overtly, like, OK, well, the man is ahead head of the household, but historically, Lily. Like, the women run the household. Like, so again, it like it might look like my father's, like, you know, uh, controlling this or that. Like, my mother chooses what power to give him and allow him to have. That's true, you know. So dad, if you hear this, and you know this, like, that's still true here today in 2023. My mama runs things. And this is true in almost every black household I'm familiar with. Um, but I think that it's it, it trickling into the economic that, that divide, particularly where um, the, the marriage rate over the past generations has um, decreased. Um, th- again, the rate of incarceration can be overstated in, in terms of this capacity, um, but I think the family structure definitely um, has an impact upon how these um, are playing out in our politics. And um, but I, I think that a lot of um, Black men who take this posture, much like again. Um, with the white working class that have this nostalgic view of what America was, I think the almost many black males is overstating in that regard as well. Um, women have long been the matriarchs of our communities and um, the leaders of our communities in many ways for a very long time in a way that I think gets lost in some of today's um, political discussion. And then just in terms of power, Lily, like, um, again, as a political scientist, you know this better than others. Um, uh, We look at our politics too often as a zero-sum game. So we look at it as if the Black woman is making some of these gains, it's at the expense of me as a Black man, which is totally incorrect, Um, and this has been um, borne out empirically. But um, we need to message this a little bit better and more effectively, um, you know, both within our community and, um, you know, outside of it.
0: slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause this is also obviously the narrative in, in the sort of white, um, not necessarily urban communities, but certainly in suburban, suburban and rural communities, um, around, you know, sort of the, the despair that we've seen in terms of white men, um, and, and their concern with losing power, um, and, and so there's like a mirror going on here, um, in the black community as well, the, the black community has been differently situated than the white, you know, sort of rural or suburban community as well.
2: Absolutely. Um, and speaking to that very briefly, like one of the things that I try and speak to in the book, cause again, although, um, I, I hope that this resonates deeply with, you know, um, black readers for sure. It is also an appeal to, you know, uh, many of those, um, white working class voters, in uh, demonstrating how the ideology of white supremacy, um, you know, has impacted them a great deal as well, um, as you know, again, our idea of white is a really, really new and fresh concept. Um, so, and it's, it was done and created specifically to harness political power and to determine who gets what and who does not. So, um, Irish, Italian folks. Um, Jewish folks were highly discriminated against when they arrived here, but it was easier to, like, you know, um, become white over time. And people wanted to become white because there was great political and economic um, tangible outcomes in being able to, like, you know, um, fall into that category. Um, so I try and really historically unpack how this is utilized as a way to try and almost kind of do a bait and switch for many white voters where. Um, the political power and gains that you know many of these communities um you know would want and desire i think has been thwarted by clinging to this notion this false and nostalgic and imagined notion of whiteness um uh, which just is not in line with um how our country has developed historically i apologize for interrupting your question
1: oh no no that that was exactly sort of where i wanted you to sort of take your discussion and the research and, and a lot of what you were also doing in, in the book is pulling in examples from popular culture venues of, 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 you know, how we're sort of seeing some of these cleavages and this idea of Black power um, or disempowerment um, or, you know, again, the kind of writing off of an entire but really important community to the Democratic Party, um, and I know you have particular research um, interest in popular culture. So how did how did popular culture inform the work that you did in this book, and what did you learn from it?
2: Oh, great question. Um, it like so in some ways this has been building, particularly some of those gender divides. Where in previous work I looked at this pretty explicitly in terms of how. Um, some of the patriarchy, like, so a lot of my work is in, is focused on hip hop culture. And for listeners out there, this is expanded beyond just rap music, although a lot of my research does focus on the content in rap lyrics. And in those, like, um, historically, a lot of times my research has found that there has been some patriarchal and uh, sexist language used. So for example, one of the ways that men will put down other men within hip hop spaces sometimes is to kind of like almost feminize them. Um pull your skirt up dude um you know th- things uh, of that nature or to call you know somebody the b word for example will be a way to emasculate them so those kind of things have been endemic to our culture um for quite some time um uh, some of my some of my discussion with my friends in terms of like um their um you know and sometimes overt homophobia's been related to like kind of the culture itself where I'll hear things like, oh, my God, I'm watching TV and I'm listening to music and like, you know, they're like, you know, trying to shove this homosexual stuff down our throats, which is, you know, uh, empirically false. There have been many studies in terms of content analysis and look at like the proportion of like, you know, uh, gay characters and like, you know, um, people that can be, um, you know, open and um, other platforms within our um, culture. And there have been some inroads for sure, but it's still not nearly representative a lot of times when it is, it's done in a very superficial type way. Um, the same way was, I'm like, look, um, just because like the, the NFL is uh, having like, um, you know, every uh, lift, every voice and scene, the informal uh, national black anthem after the, um, the national anthem of the United States. This don't mean that the NFL gives a damn about black folks. They care about black dollars. So the same way some of these corporations, like, you know, they'll appeal to different communities, um, but they're not really like taking um, any hard stands towards like, you know, uplifting Latino folks, uplifting um, LGBTQ folks, uplifting the Black community. But people will see these things in the culture. So they're like, oh, my God, you know, this, you know, Black stuff is everywhere. It's the popular music. I'm seeing all these different TV shows. That's very different from actual power. Like, so it, it is cool that we see, like, you know, a few more Black folks in a TV show. It's, it's dope that, you know, um, Morgan Freeman gets to play president sometime in some movies. That's very different from actual power. But a lot of times our political understandings come from our TV shows, the movies that we watch. And it's, it, it doesn't allow for a really complex understanding of how these issues are shaped and uh, distributed. So popular culture is, uh, I think, really important to um, really begin to push back against some of these false narratives um, and and do it in a way that is uh, less superficial than I think that we see a lot of times.
1: And, and so I I did want to bring you back to the, you know sort of the the real emphasis in in the book itself, which is that the the gains that black people have achieved in politics, in power, um, in the United States, um, have been often obscured, overlooked, dismissed, um, not, not trumpeted. Um, and, and again, this is like, this is in tension with obviously the, the unpleasant narratives that have been so embedded about Black citizens, um, and and so you go to great lengths to talk about, you know, what has been achieved by essentially Black power. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of how you're tracing and what you're tracing in, in sort of showing that in this book?
2: No, uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, yeah, like, um, so, t- for example and talking like, you know, to some of my, um, you know, friends that like inspire, like, you know, this book, um, there would be an argument, for example, and this is not uncommon within the black community that Obama didn't do anything for black people. like, you know, he only like, you know, focused on like, you know, um, gays and lesbians. Um, and this would be through like, you know, supporting like, you know, marriage rights and, um, you know, just, you know, being treated equally and things of that nature, which are basic fundamental things. Um, And it's uh, one who's uh, been uh, married before and uh, hope to be married again uh, pretty soon. Um, uh, So hopefully, uh, you know, uh, the the potential, uh, the future business isn't listening here. But uh, getting the right to be married, man, like that's not like, you know, um, in some cases that could be more of a punishment than a right or a reward. I say that jokingly, but, um, you know, those are the kind of like tangible, like really um, headline worthy type gains that a lot of times we... Used as a shorthand understanding of our political system. So I, you know, uh, really labor to get, you know, really in the weeds in terms of like, just some of the everyday granular things um, that have been achieved, which are not always sexy, won't make for like, you know, good headlines on uh, Fox, CNN, or MSNBC, but are really critically important, particularly for my generation, Lily, where so many of the things that were fought for in the 1950s and 60s, were not recognized, um, were not realized by the people that were were fighting for them. Um, I live in a very flawed America, no question about it. It is not the America that my parents and grandparents lived in by any means. And that's really important to understand. And those things can just happen magically. So I go like, you know, really detailed into like, you know, different policy gains, going back to the 1800s, and to also look at um, how those things were achieved. The, the black voting block is not large enough where we can ever do these things on our own. Um, so we're going to need to have like, by definition, we have to exist through coalition politics. Um, and through that, through reconstruction, through the new deal, um, through the great society. And um, even in the Obama and Clinton years, there have been some really tangible gains that have uh, been had, um, you know, whether it be, Things like that, like so, uh, Obama and others have not um, passed any kind of overt. This is a policy for like you know black people, but Obamacare, for example, um, housing relief that uh, folks are provided, um, st- the student debt relief that's being fought for now, those are issues that disproportionately impact you know black folks. Um, so, um, particularly again in the underclass. So throughout history, we- we've only had a few cases. So. In a great society, for example, there, and, and actually, let me take this back because I was about to speak to during a great society and legislation during the 1960s, there were laws that were like, you know, for black folks, but that's not even true. The civil rights laws benefited a whole swath of people. It was very deliberate in the language. That may not like, you know, again, uh, be demonstrated in a PBS special or uh, or, or your social media meme, but the reality is that those gays, like, you know, really benefited everyone. Um, and I think that that goes, that holds true throughout Reconstruction. Many efforts um, in the late 1800s and the early 20th century, for example, to mobilize rights for labor across race. And throughout history, politicians have used the seductive uh, message of white supremacy to kind of upset some of those coalitions. Um, and left many black voters sometimes to feel like that you that were left to fight alone, but the book is uh, makes very um, strong efforts to go through roughly 150 years of history and showing the gains, and showing how again some things that were we'll fought for in the 1920s we found that we got to fight for again in the 1970s. There are days much like again um, it was believed that Roe v.ersus Wade like okay we did it like no you got to keep fighting because one of the things that I want folks to know is that um, the people on the other side that uh, want to fight against social progress, they never stop. And there are always people like, you know, laboring to push that back. So we have to stay informed. We got to stay mobilized. But the notion that we, there haven't been real actual tangible gains to improve people's lives in very direct ways is just patently false.
1: And And so in terms of the the you know sort of the the thrust of the book in its sociological dimensions as opposed to some of the the political sciency dimensions is that you are looking at you know the sort of particular sense or or feeling that particularly black men have had um and that we're seeing some of this reflected in polling of late um, and and you talk about this also with regard to the 2016 election, particularly with regard to you know the the black coalitions in in places like Milwaukee um, or Philadelphia, where the turnout was not nearly as high as when Obama was on the ticket um, in 2008 and 2012. Um, but that you know we have we've had we've had like you know two steps forward, one step back in terms of this coalition. But that. Black men are really not necessarily on the same plane as the Black women um, with regard to the Democratic Party, um, but but are they um, politically engaged in general or are they more stepping back
2: in general? Great question. In my research, there does seem to be more of a stepping back overall, but for those that are engaged there are more and more, uh, folks that are being met more and more black males that are being peeled off by, um, I was going to say conservative politics, but I mean, quite frankly, and, um, you know, no offense to any of, um, your listeners, which I hope is a bipartisan group. I I was going to say conservative politics, but that's not really what this is, um, in terms of the modern Republican party. Um, it's a very radicalized, um, you know, notion based upon, again, our Historical uh, political uh, playing, and um, I think again, just the um, the overt, uh, very simplistic, quite frankly, like you know, um, level of uh, machismo um, and patriarchy. I think that that's really appealing. So the fear is that you know that um, you know issues like you know again um, LGBTQ, uh, the gun rights laws, where like I, I've heard from folks like because uh, again, there is a very strong uh, gun rights, um, faction within the black male community. And and understood, I am not a gun owner, but I enthusiastically support, um, you know, black folks, um, rights on a gun. Um, too often, um, the folks that have been, um, you know, paid through our tax dollars to serve and protect us have not always done it at the levels that, you know, have been satisfactory. So I totally understand, you know, um, the, desire to, you know, uh, bear arms, um, you know, for sure. Now, I don't know if you need a damn AR-15, like, you know, a war zone uh, weapon to, like, you know, be able to do that, but I understand the temptation. So I've heard from some of my friends that Democrats are trying to steal my guns. No, they are not. Like, so I, I think that part of the problem, uh, we need to be more informed and engaged, um, you know, because again, in these conversations, I try and challenge, you know, uh, some of my uh, Black male friends, like, look, and I'm very mindful. I'm not even trying to change your mind or your policies per se, but if you say that you have these certain values, um, the politicians that you're talking about supporting are, are not really aligned with those. Uh, and I think that, uh, given the advent of social media, that's um, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing some fall off there. I've even sent some of my, um, you know, folks in these conversations Lily. uh, on social media there have been really targeted attempts aimed at black men specifically um to try and like you know again propagandize uh, some of these issues and to simplify them and um in many cases been very effective so I think that a lot of these messages unfortunately um you know have kind of an organic appeal to uh black males but I think a large part of this is um related to a dearth of inf- information and in this way a final point to this where I definitely want citizens to be more informed, but part of it, a large part of this, is the media's fault, quite, uh, quite frankly. And I say this uh, one who has um, a very proud background in journalism, but the way that we talk about, you know, stories, uh, particularly in the broadcast media, I think our print media still does a good job of this, quite frankly. But our broadcast media it just provides really simplified, dumbed down, um, you know, frames of some of these issues. It doesn't dig into the things that, like, you know, happen every day. Um, you turn on the news every day and it gives you these. Um, it's either Trump indictment or um, now, again, uh, Palestine-Israel. And you have, like, we're going to talk to all the people who feel like, okay, that Israel's being um, heavy-handed. We're going to feel uh, talk to this group that feels like, no, they have rights right to defend themselves. And there's no, there's not even complexity given to an issue like that, which, again, as you know, it just has so many different layers and tentacles to it. But we just get this really simplified version, uh, and and that's really served out democracy very poorly. Um, it's called the fourth. The, the media is called the fourth estate for a reason because to have a functioning democracy, you need to have an informed public, and the education that you spoke to, where there's not as many, uh, you know, uh, men being recruited into formal education. Because again, I I am not saying this from a soapbox. I I live a very privileged life that gives me access to all types of information and that forces and challenges me to be informed about these things. So, and even for me, it is hard to keep up with everything. But I think that our media and our politicians have to find a way to penetrate through these messages because the prejudices that they're experiencing um, and expressing, like, it's not unique or new to Black men. Um, But I do think that... um, Our ranks are being targeted in some very specific ways, but we have to do it. And these have not been easy conversations. Uh, When we're hearing these things, the same way that I've told some of my um, white colleagues that if you want to be an ally to the black community, it's not just enough to like, you know, uh, post on social media. When your uncle, your granddaddy is saying some crazy stuff at Thanksgiving dinner, I'm not telling you to like, you know, uh, pick a fighter not to love your grandfather. Um, I love some of the closed minded people in my life But I think that we do need to do a more effective job of kind of correcting some of these um, narratives and at least uh, framing, widening out the discussion. So I really try to um, do that in conversations that I have with folks because like it is really and I guess maybe I'm more sensitive to it now that um, after having written this book, it's really omnipresent in a barbershop, um, sports talk and different uh, sporting events uh, within the music that I listen to. That some of these things are just really circulated without a lot of thought. So um, we all have a responsibility to challenge these things um, a lot more, but also in a way where we're not canceling folks and we're not like, you know, um, you know, pushing them away from discussion. We we need to have true dialogue and become more effective in sharing information.
1: And and so that is the solution that you're talking about, because you do talk about the fact that you're promising some suggestions. Um, on, on, on how to get out of potentially this quagmire, at least how the Democratic Party, because the, the Republican Party has also been, you know, consciously to a point making an appeal to black Americans because black Americans tend to be more conservative um, than than liberal. Um, And so, you know, there you know, I've been reading I've been reading think pieces for 40 years about how the Republican Party is more the natural home for um, black voters than the Democratic Party is. Um, But but at the same time, obviously, there are these questions about, you know, sort of what's perhaps a little bit racialized in the Republican Party. Um, So what are some of the solutions besides, you know, sort of having the opportunity with people who are perhaps spouting closed-minded perspectives.
2: No, you, no, that is a great point, and um, and, and you're right. Like so, the, the black community, and this has long been true, um, has been, you know, a, again, we don't want to paint with a broad brush, but I think you're, you're right. Like it is a very social, con- socially conservative space at times, and I think that those messages can have some appeal uh, to black folks. Um, no question about it. Um, the solutions are, again, more information. And then the more broad one is that Democratic politicians have to, like, so, again, the same way that um, Republican uh, politicians, they, they have made no bones about uh, standing with uh, mil- military families, for example, or, uh, or standing with um, evangelicals uh, very strongly and un- unapologetically. The Democrats have to be, Democratic politicians have to begin to do that more. And again, I see some... Um, um you know some shifts in this regard but there have been times you know where um you know the, from the sister soldier moment on where bill clinton in, an, in trying to appeal to white voters wanted to be able to demonstrate that hey i can stand up to my base um obama even had to like kind of do this delicate dance at times but one of um the more disappointing times during his uh presidency was um when he was like um lecturing um, to black fathers and things of that nature in a way that came off uh, very kind of sinning and like almost like typical of the kind of things that we've been used to hearing from white politicians. So Democrats have to become more effective in terms of how they com- communicate to these communities. And let's be clear, we're not talking about pandering because black people are going to see right through that. Like we know, like when, when you're coming to this church, and you haven't been anywhere near a Black community in four years, like, people know what's going on there. So we have to consistently show up, but Democratic politicians have to consistently show up, not just when the cameras are rolling, um, and they have to become more overt in identifying policies that are specific to um, the Black community. Um, and do it in a way where it shows that, hey, the gains for this group does not mean, like, um, you know, um, that you have to lose anything. I forget the official. I, I'm assuming that you um attended the DACA event on Tuesday, okay, so there were some concerning things that were said there in terms of like, um, you know, that like um uh, the uh, Republican official talked about building a wall which is just like um, you know, symbolically stupid on his face, but it's just bad policy if you understand anything about illegal immigration. ain't nobody climbing a wall, dude, like um, you pay somebody that like you know has to drive back and forth. Uh, you pay them good enough; they will ship people in. You get all types of underground tunnels, um, and as so long as there's work here for corporations to uh, give them, people are going to flood, you know, um, into the country. But that's a whole other discussion. But there were points he 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 was inter- He was speaking about a bipartisan bill, and he talked about again how like it's a policy that can appeal to both progressive and conservatives. So I think that there are ways for politicians for both parties, quite frankly, to thread those needles a lot more effectively um, than they do. The challenge for politicians, and I will acknowledge this, um, I don't have any easy answers for this part, um, Lily. Both parties are very polarized right now. And it is very difficult to like, um, I don't want to say moderate positions, but in in some cases trying to like, you know, find um, ideas that can appeal to a broad range it, that's becoming more challenging to do. So I think that we have to begin to find, you know, areas where we have common ground in terms of our politics. But there have been, but there needs to be some times where Democratic politicians are not afraid to say, like, yes, we stand with Black and again, not just um with, during George Floyd uh, moments and giving speeches and um hashtags, but really showing like that you're um, committed to um that you acknowledge there there are some still systemic disparities between Black Americans um, and other groups and really take some deliberate a- deliberate actions towards uh, making those things happen. So, because the book also is a warning to the Democratic Party that if they don't begin to do that, they're going to lose more Black, black voters um, to the Republicans or worse yet, they're going to be more and more people that sit out. So there needs to be some more tangible gains and deliverables for the Black community as well. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that in a way that does not um, compromise other groups, but that's going to require the um, political balance of folks more talented than myself, the political dexterity of folks more talented than myself to be able to deliver that message effectively.
1: And so now that you've solved, you know, race relations in the United States. (laughs) Is is that what I'm doing? (laughs) Um, what are you working on now, Kareem?
2: I, I may have called some more, but I'm trying. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Uh uh-uh. oh. Did you did we freeze? What what are you working on now? Yes, so, so I am finishing up. So um the Marvel uh MCU um Marvel Comic Universe, um, which again it really reinforces just how our politics um, are intertwined in pub, in um, in pub, popular culture. And I'll admit, like, um, you know, so obviously, um, you know, uh, when Black Panther came out, that was something that was viewed as, like, you know, hugely uh, political within the Black community, not just seen as, like, a movie in and of itself. I think people almost saw, like, a responsibility to go see it um, almost as a show of, like, you know, uh, racial solidarity, if you will. But as I started to dig into it more with your assistance, um, I really was... um impressed at just how intersected with politics, you know, the entire MCU is. So my particular focus right now, I'm contributing a chapter to um, the latest edition of uh, this book that speaks to um, some of the cleavages that you spoke about earlier, the divide between black male men and women within our political sphere. And I juxtapose that um, narrative into how black, uh, the black Panther uh, series played out, particularly the last one where, um, You know, again, with um, T'Challa, you know, uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman's death and then T'Challa, you know, being killed off in a film and how in some circles, um, even that just generated a a large amount of like um, consternation within some black male circles. Um, We saw this, for example, not to have too much of a diversion, but um, The Woman King, I don't know if you've seen uh, the Viola, uh, Viola Davis film. So they were like, you know, Black dudes online and we're kind of freaking about that as well. So just showing again how this uh, female power dynamic, because again, in the second film, um, the female protagonists were the heroines and the ones that saved the day. And they demonstrated like both intellectual and physical power in a way that I thought was really impressive. It is, uh, you know, customary Black women, uh, quite frankly, but just doesn't get, hasn't like, we haven't seen those kind of images historically within Hollywood. So I try and explore the way that the film kind of like is almost art imitating life in terms of this struggle uh, between like, you know, Black male uh, dominance and uh, Black female uh, dominance. But my uh, argument here is that all of these things can work in alignment and that uh, whether they want to or not, uh, Black dudes like myself are going to have to get comfortable because um, a progressive society and a progressive world requires more um, more female power more broadly, um, but certainly uh, more Black female power. And quite frankly, both in my book and in that chapter, Lily, I argue that uh, essentially um, Black women have to save the world, much like they did uh, in the Black Panther 2.
1: Well, you know, again, another responsibility for Black women to take yeah,
2: out. Absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> black women out there, I know you all don't have anything else to do, so... You know what's one more task, but yeah, it is. Um, and I and I don't take that lightly because it, it is a lot. Like it is it is a challenge being a black man in America, even for someone of my uh, state in life. Um, uh, it can be a challenge being a black man in America, but um, it is just like horrific at times to imagine kind of the challenges that black women have to go through day to day. Um, uh, but I think that that position and that social uh, posture historically also makes them uniquely suited. To be able to empathize with the struggles across communities in a way that I see lacking sometimes um amongst other factions. And
1: and so um we we give them the power and we know that they have the power, but I feel like it's something else on the black woman's to-do list.
2: No question. <laughs> no, question. no question. And right. and, and also, I think, but, uh, and as a final point with that, I also like um make note of how like uh Shuri make, uh, Shuri, right? Shuri. Yeah. Shuri. So how Shuri and Killmonger, for example, so Killmonger in many ways almost wanted power for power's sake, where Shuri wanted to have power that was going to actually benefit, you know, um, the wider community. So even there, like she could have abused her power and we'll see what the next, um, you know, um, installment holds, but she even like, kind of like, you know, Hey, I've done my part to stabilize our society now I don't really really want to hang on to power because t- um, titular power, and as I'm sure you know, and um, you know having served as a uh, chair at FEC, president amongst other capacity in other roles, you know, it's a huge responsibility and a very thankless job. So um, I don't think that like you know black women are using this in a way to like try and dominate others, um, but to actually try and like you know uh, make society better. And I don't pretend that that's because there's something genetically within women, I believe that black women's experience in America has given them a unique perspective to be able to um execute power in that way
1: yeah I, I I agree with you completely and and I do think that again it's a it's a politically powerful group um that you know has often been behind the scenes as opposed to in front um, which is often the case with women but particularly with black women as well. Um, so I would like to thank Kareem Mohammed for joining me today to talk about the fight for black empowerment in the USA, America's last hope. This was published in 2024 by Rutledge, um, university, Rutledge press in their research in race and ethnicity series. Kareem, is there a brick and mortar store with possibly an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to?
2: We are working on brick and mortar. My publishers probably have a better sense of that information than I do. Um, So I apologize. Um, Offhand, I'm not sure, Uh, but I will uh, make uh, you aware as I would come privy to that information. I apologize at the end of the semester, uh, as important as I think this book is, um, there have been so many other, um, you know, pins that I'm juggling right now, but I'll have that information for you and your listeners soon for sure.
1: I appreciate that, but I'm sure people can buy it at Rutledge's website.
2: Yes, definitely, definitely.
1: All right. Thank you, Kareem, for joining me today to talk about this book.
2: No, thank you so much for having me and um again, um you know I appreciate all the work that you're doing to uh, try and uh, spread these uh, messages more broadly and um it was a great pleasure talking with you today.